Hey everyone, this is Craig Finn and you're listening to That's How I Remember It. Uh, some years ago, I met a young band called Deer Tick from Providence, Rhode Island. The way I remember it, the year was 2009. We, uh, the Hold Steady played with them in Ithaca, New York. I also think I might have met singer John McCauley before that same year at South by Southwest that spring. A little bit after all that, I definitely saw them on a boat for my friend Johnny Beach's birthday. Um, that night they had a little more time to stretch out during their awesome set. They went into some covers, a Buddy Holly song, also a version of La Bamba, etc. I was kind of amazed and super excited to see a band that was definitely younger than I was, but with a real knowledge and reverence for 50s and 60s rock and roll. I've been a big fan for a long time, and now I've become friends with the guys. The Hold Steady's toured with Deer Tick in 2014. We had some really good times. During all this, I've been keeping up with all of their records, uh, which are all super great, but I think their newest emotional contracts, released in June this year, might very well be their best. It's also really interesting to me that um, all of the band members seem to be contributing uh, to the songwriting these days. It's been a cool journey to watch these guys grow as writers, musicians, people, we talked about all of that here. It's such an honor to have John McCauley and Ian O'Neill here, our first two guest episode in the history of this podcast. Let's check out Deer Tick, and that's how I remember it. Welcome, John McCauley, Ian O'Neill from the band Deer Tick. I'm going to start, that's how I remember it, the way I do each one of them. That is, do you think you have a good memory? John, you first. Do you think you have a good memory? Yeah. Um, I've described my brain to my wife as like the container store. It's <laughs> just have- full of little compartments <laughs> and they're all, they're not going anywhere. They don't get mixed up. They're exactly where they're supposed to be. But do I sometimes have a hard time opening some of those containers? <laughs> Sure, but it's all in there. It's under the same roof. <laughs> what? Uh, what? Uh, what? Like? Like? Uh, are there things that? You, are there the certain containers that are more difficult to open? If I haven't played a song in a while, uh, it can be hard for me to remember what I did on the guitar. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like uh, on the other side of that, like the lyrics and melody and stuff is is easier to access and and ian how about you your memory i had a little because i've listened to your podcast i've been thinking about this question this morning um and i think the answer is yes like i think despite my best efforts throughout my young adult life like erasing my memory (laughs) with uh, you know habits and just the way you live through your 20s um i was thinking about today how i remember so much of that and so every single detail like uh hanging out in conversations with friends and in childhood, I remember things from when I was one and two years old. So I think so. Um, but I also think I'm a forgetful person in my day-to-day life. Do you think touring, um, I mean, you know, you've mentioned this, but do you think touring affects your memory in some way? Be- meaning not just like, you know, drinking a lot or whatever, but like right. being transitional through things. Do you think, like, do you, does it help? I mean, it might help too. Well, the, the lifestyle requires you to uh, repeat kind of the same things over and over again on a daily basis. So even more than just playing, like you really end up in a routine, whether you think you're a freaking wild man or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that honestly touring probably set me on a more like on a path to consistency and cleanliness and just like the, the day-to-day routine of touring um, kind of like made me a more, anal person in a weird way where there's things that I need to do on a daily basis. And um, I don't know. I think that like in terms of memory, yeah, I think I can compartmentalize like portions of my life into what kind of touring we were doing, where we were, how often we were going to Europe, weird things like that, that like give me a lot of like sense of my, my life so far. I thought I, I as I've t- had these talks, I've thought a lot about it. Like, I remember a lot about shows because you go to a new venue, even though you're doing the same thing, like, you know, you're going to a new venue and you kind of clock, oh, that's the venue. That's the band that's opening for us tonight, whatever. But like recording albums because you go to the same place every day. I don't remember much about that. 
Because you kind of, there aren't memories sort of to be made, you know, you're just kind of doing what, that's how I feel. And and it's, so I think the touring can reinforce memories sometimes. With recording sessions, I think I remember more things that have nothing to do with music than I do uh, actually sitting in there and agonizing over a vocal take or whatever, you know? Yeah, and if you change it up, like for instance, like we made two records in the same exact studio, and they I can't differentiate between the two, you know. Be, but like now, then when we go in different places, I'm like I can remember. Oh, downstairs was the lounge. I remember going down there after doing whatever, you know. There's also like a certain stress to recording where like you don't know if it's going to go well until you're there, and then you're like just wanting to get to the other side of it and finish it so that it did go well. Whereas when you're on the road, you're like enjoying the experience thoroughly night to night and being with your friends and you know your crew and everything like that and like playing the music is like such an enjoyable thing to live in and i think recording for me is always like we got to get this over with because it's got to be good so <laughs> i don't know that that's our band man i i feel like we encounter a lot of bands that are really not friends with each other <laughs> <laughs> that's true too well yeah i mean that's that's a thing i mean and you know touring um also, it has the wild card of of your own your friends who aren't in the band showing up in different places. Where generally you're keeping them out of the recording studio, and um, I think that that may be part of it. Thinking about this though, it's, it's something you just said. When you guys look back, like you know, eight years ago or whatever, and you see, do you do you think about the year, or do you think about like, oh, that's when we were touring on this album? Like, like do do the projects define the time for you? Not for me, because we were kind of always a perennial touring band. Like, I really have no idea what album was out. Like, if you just give me a year, I can, like, recall a lot of things that happened, but I don't immediately think of where in our catalog that is, you know. How about you, Ian? That's funny. I disagree. Um, and I think, actually, maybe around the time of our album, Negativity, is when I started to look at things that way. And I'll often refer to like, oh, that's when we were touring volumes one and two. That's when we were touring mayonnaise or negativity. Um, but like, I think that that happened as the more like professional our career became. When I first joined the band, it was like, we went on TV and played a song that was from two records ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, just like, so like, it was just, I don't feel like the music industry was as like organized for young rock bands as it is today. Um, and, or at least we were. And, um, so I, I do I do feel that way now. I look back on like like I don't really know because like like for say for example the album negativity we toured several years across that record so it's just kind of like a time for me and when we start playing those songs and focus on those songs so the projects for me I think they actually do. I have a dog. I got Rosalita and I I know I got her during my record. We all want the same things. And then I do the math and say, oh, that was 2017. But my first part of my memory goes to like what I was working on, you know? And um, I, I, I've, I've been asking people that for that. I'd love to hear both of your earliest memory of music. Ian, let's start with you. Sure. Um, I think the earliest memory of music that I have is there's a carnival here in um, New England called the Big E. And some like uh, kind of boys to men type band called All for One played, and it was the first time I became fanatical over a band. I was probably like three, and had to buy their their tape or CD or whatever it was at the time. Um, and that was like the first like I think that was the first instance of fandom that I can remember, and like which didn't cause me to want to make music yet, but it was probably set me on that path. How about you, John? I can remember certain songs and. I don't I don't have a whole lot of early childhood memories for whatever reason. They're just kind of they don't really start until I'm a little bit older, but I know when I was very young I had a little Fisher Price record player and I just I remember some of the singles, the 45s that I had that I just loved and those songs were like uh No Matter What by Badfinger uh, got my mind set on you, George Harrison. <laughs> what else was there? Uh, La Bamba and Donna from Los Lobos, because the La Bamba movie soundtrack had just come out. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, pretty 
those are pretty hip i mean pretty for, cool rock and roll songs yeah. yeah what what about what john what was your at some point did there come music that was kind of like your own versus your parents like did you you know like did your parents have music around they did right my mom loves music uh and most of those records you know she would have either given to me or or bought for me or her her brother my uncle brian gave me a bunch of records too i mean my dad gave me my his old dire straits t-shirt once but and I've seen a picture of him wearing a Born in the USA shirt. But other than that, my dad doesn't come across as much of a music guy at all. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of shocked that he at one point owned any sort of band's T-shirt. You know, that's just kind of weird to me. Uh, but <laughs> but um, when did it start? really splitting off i don't know because i really loved oldies like <laughs> and like early rock and roll um you know my mom loved that too so i i don't know maybe around when i got to high school or something and i i started getting more into punk rock and noisy stuff and uh you know whatever things that weren't um early rock and roll and uh 70s rock and roll ian do you, how about you did you have did you yeah. was it around then high school junior high i have high a school? very specific memory of the moment when this occurred i remember seeing sitting in my mom's bed and like mtv was on or something and seeing the music video for smells like teen spirit and i was just like holy shit this is the coolest thing i've ever seen in my life and my mom like outlawed mtv in the house after that for like a couple years but they let me buy whatever cds i wanted to so i immediately Got into that and into like Nine Inch Nails too. I bought like a CD single of one of the Nine Inch Nails songs because it didn't have explicit content warning on it, stuff like that. But yeah, my parents like they lost me after that. But now, now we pretty much listen to the same music. So I I grew up in a house like John. You're saying my parents didn't have a lot of music around, and uh, but they they had like maybe I don't know, let's say twenty records. But instead, you know how you put your records on the spine like that? Mm-hmm. Theirs were like flat, like on so you, like what which. To me, just sort of says something like, like, like they aren't, you know. They, they, I mean, their the, the records are staying in a pile. Um, yeah, and you know, most of the, a lot of those were Christmas records. So, I mean, but there was some folk and um, some rock, Bob Seger, uh, Billy Joel, kind of things like that. Uh, yeah, you're you're reminding me that my dad did have an extensive library of fucking Christmas music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember like like the, the 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 my parents would have a dinner party and they'd put the six like you know albums in a stack. Do you remember this? And then they drop automatically. Yes, like that was like my the, grandparents had that. Yeah, yeah. We're going into fall here. It's the end of the summer, and I'm really interested in whether music connects to seasons with people. Do you guys find yourself drawn to certain music in certain seasons? And if so, is there albums you think of as fall? Records, autumn records. Oh yeah, what what would be a fall record for you? Uh, Pink Moon, um, If I Should Fall from Grace with God. Uh, what else? Uh, the uh, Dead Man's Pop, the Don't Tell a Soul reissue. Uh, I love that Matt Wallace mix, and that reminds me of fall for whatever reason. Maybe that's when it came out in 2019 or whatever how about you ian totally 100 percent um and i feel like people are like like sushan stevens is putting out a new record and like i feel like his for some reason i saw him he put out a new single and i was like oh yeah i used to like some of his records in the fall specifically and i was thinking about that the other day and i was like i should check some of those out from like the early 2000s so i don't know just just thinking about those two right there but um, yeah, fall morning records, like obviously Harvest, you know, that's a really good one for the fall. Um, but yeah, those Sufjan records really, uh, they, they came back to my my, my mind as, as the fall is approaching. I was actually going to add, it's funny um, John brought up Pink Moon, because I was going to ask you guys about Nick Drake, because I, I, I think people feel like Nick Drake is fall music, and I hear it as spring music, but which is, you know, the flip side of fall, I guess, but rain music <laughs> it's rain yeah it's like you know it's it's like like uh 
budding music, you know, like like the flowers are just kind of coming out of the ground to me. I don't know. Uh, it, it reminds me of my first apartment, which I moved into over the summer. And then by fall, I was listening to a lot of Nick Drake and experimenting with this uh, guitar tuning that I still use that I, I copped from from Nick Drake. It goes uh, CGC FCF from Low to High. Are there many deer tick songs in that tuning? There's probably around 10 of them. Yeah. So wow. anytime I play that green jazz master, it's in that tuning. Cool. Yeah. You know, the other, the, the, the replacements you said is fall. That's really fall music to me. Let it be. And Tim or to it. Like when I first got into music, most records I listened to were already out for a while. You know what I mean? But like, those are two records I remember like waiting for them to come out and they both yeah. came out in fall. So um, those are, those are very much autumn records. Uh, REM Reckoning for whatever reason, I think that came out in spring, but I didn't hear it till fall, and that one like always arpeggiated guitars sound good in yeah, fall yeah. to me. <laughs> yeah, know? another one for me actually. Before we move on, is um, I moved to New York in the late summer, early fall of two thousand and six, and I was waiting for "Modern Times" by Bob Dylan to come out, and I listened to that walking through the village throughout the entire fall and winter of that year. So that one comes to mind too. Yeah. That, that's 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 I, I that was a fall record that was a fall release right was that yeah i think it was like uh, late august or early september i forget but have you ever had a either of you ever had a song ruined like meaning you know the obvious would be like a breakup like i can't hear that song anymore um uh is there any is there, or any piece of art is there is there anything that's kind of like gotten stamped with a bad memory that yes i can give you a very specific example uh down on the corner by ccr <laughs> was played on Walgreens commercials <laughs> for fucking four years straight. And like, I used to love Credence, and you know, John Fogarty had his catalog ruined. But um, yeah, that down on the corner of the Walgreens commercial, uh, and, and it's a more humorful, t- like a you know, humorous take. But like that really ruined it for me for whatever reason. Films, film, and TV can can kind of alter the path of a song. It can. You got to be careful with that stuff. How about you, John? Anything that comes to mind? Burger King ruined Walk of Life <laughs> for me. Oh, yeah. I no, I'm, I'm just kidding. I love that song. Jeez, uh, I don't know. I mean, um, you know, the past however many years, a lot of very disappointing news has come out about artists that we've enjoyed over the years. And uh, I don't think I could ever enjoy the uh, Gary Busey, Buddy Holly story movie anymore <laughs> right right <laughs> uh, what a terrific performance though you know the one is i don't know why but like uh phil Collins. is it is the song in the air the phil collins song with the with the really oh, cool yeah. drum fill that one I, there's nothing wrong with it but like i don't i think like some somehow i've got something attached to that song from my youth that it it was really popular too. Like it may have just been overplayed, but there's something about that song I just kind of get the creeps and don't like it, you know. And there's nothing against Phil Collins or I, when I listen to that song objectively, I'm like it's pretty good, but I just don't like it, you know. Yeah, I, I there's I think I have some songs like that, but I can't remember them right now. But like yeah, sometimes there's like I wonder if there's some detached event that I'm not even remembering. That is, gets associated with movies or songs or something like that. Because I have some movies that just make me, like movies about space, make me very uncomfortable. <laughs> or songs about space. <laughs> and like since I was a young child, I don't know why that is. But Free floating, floating, and that's, yeah, I guess there's terror. So Major Tom? Yeah, I don't really like that song very much. I don't oh, know Rocket why. Man. Really don't like that song. <laughs> Pink Floyd, uh, like there's there's a lot of space kind of stuff. Yeah, it just felt like to me growing up and even now, like it feels like kind of frivolous in a weird way. And maybe I'm just like so much more attached to like the human components of life that like I'm more concerned with what's going on here. I don't know something about. 
I had this conversation with someone a few years ago and I was like, I really can't get with science fiction, you know, like that's not. And he, and he was like, oh, so you just like reading about dudes that have the exact same <laughs> problems as you do. And I was like, I kind of, I have to admit that's exactly what I like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of what life's about. I don't know. Yeah. I don't really care about the other planet, you know, if it take, cause there's all this allegory and all that, that he can, you can do by putting someone on another planet but i'm like just put him in new york and you know yeah <laughs> make him about my age <laughs> i'm sorry but i need to see myself in something <laughs> yeah um all right so uh, you know getting more towards the band this deer chick started as just john and you know over many oh. years well is that true? Sorta. no is it okay it st- started as a duo with the drummer uh paul it was uh my best bud growing up paul maradola but um we got a couple other local players in the band, but like uh, this, uh, one girl was in college and she didn't really want to commit to doing it. The other guy was not nearly as good of a bassist as he claimed to be. <laughs> and uh, I don't think Paul really wanted to try to play drums for a living. So everybody ended up out of the band except for me. And that's kind of when I really started touring so like mm-hmm. fuck this i gotta get out of here and i gotta find people to play with and um yeah chris chris and dennis joined eventually and then we found ian but yeah hey i'm craig finn here on that's how i remember it we often talk about music so i wanted to mention distro kid and their new app for iphone and android distro kid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100 of their royalties and earnings over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties, edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. You know, it's gone on a journey of some sort. Um, but now it's, you know, it's not only a band, but but multiple songwriters. And it's obviously that's happened over years. But do you think that, does that signal, to me, it signals an open mind around creativity. Like, you know, uh, different people can bring in different things. Is that it? Or is it just kind of a bond from touring? Or is it necessity? Like, hey, I've only got four songs. Do you have any? That kind of thing. No, that was my intent from the beginning was to kind of create a band where it could be a, you know, you could get a lot of creative input from all the members. I always liked the model of the Beatles, you know? I mean, they were just, I don't know, kind of my favorite thing when I was a young kid and uh, something about their band and the way that it was structured uh, really appealed to me. One of the thing, one of the reasons I bring up necessity, and I've said this before on the podcast, but one of my favorite things of the past few years is reading about how Revolver came to be with the Beatles, where they literally the label was like, "We need product by Christmas," and they were like, "Oh, I've got four songs, I've got three songs, I've got you know." So it was it wasn't like, and it's you know, some would say it's the greatest rock and roll record of all time, but it wasn't made you know, to be this epic thing. It was more just like, hey, it was cooperative. And um, yeah, and I feel like sometimes that's how things go. Yeah, I, th- I think that like, especially with this record, we kind of did something like that where we we just had a lot of extra time. And so all three of us, the songwriters in the band, had so much more material than we usually have that we got to pick from the best stuff, which was, Usually, as John has said in the past, like we'll go into the studio just by the skin of our teeth, you know what I mean, with just enough stuff um, and not have a ton of B-sides. But I don't know, this model, I, I like this model more. <laughs> Speaking of the new record, it's, I mean, I think it's your best record for me. And I, that's high price. I'm a big fan and have been a long time. But there's something about this one that seems just elevated and cool and like awesome. I've been listening to it for months now. If it is your best record, is is do you think it's do you owe it to that to having more songs to choose from, or are there other factors too? Uh, I I think we've honed our skills as songwriters. Um, 
and yeah kind of having all that extra space in between records i think the songs benefited greatly from it because uh, you know we demoed most of those songs years before we hit the studio with them and uh you know COVID happened and then we didn't want to make a remote record we were all living in different cities and so we waited that out until we could get in with uh dave fridman and you know over the, in that long isolated waiting period uh i listened to those demos over and over again and made little changes where i could and it got me to write a couple extra songs and you know dennis and ian came in with some more material we started kind of jamming more regularly once i moved back up to rhode island in uh 2021 and yeah i don't know it, it just it we got to take our time and make careful maneuvers with this one i i also think that like the subject matter of like approaching middle age just seems to suit my mind better and i think i can just write about it better than i could write about other things like, like i think space the age, <laughs> like, space or? yeah no space songs um no i don't know there's something about like like being very honest with myself and being very thoughtful was really important this time around and i think that not that it hasn't been in the past but it just seemed things seem to come easier to me right now than they did in my 20s there's a you know some of the songs thematically suggest kind of a change you know like like you know i'm thinking about right in the first song this same old town but i don't make the same rounds same old man i ain't you know i ain't with the old crowd the shows you know i it, it the shows at one point you know i've seen shows of yours that have been wildly chaotic and and now they're you know more pro uh is is this part of you know approaching middle ages is that part of what you're what you're talking about is is there a sense of being settled or or you know you're both fathers now etc i mean it gets kind of old showing up uh too drunk for work over and over again <laughs> and, uh, you know you start to wear it on your on your face and in your you know your posture and your your body looks like shit. <laughs> you know, things catch up to you. So, yeah, we kind of we didn't make a decision. It just kind of slowly we kind of morphed into a, a little bit more streamlined, a little bit more trustworthy, a little bit more consistent uh, act. And it's uh, it's more fun now because we're better at playing our instruments. So, <laughs> yeah, I feel like before I was kind of living the things I was writing about, and now I'm, I have, I, I actually can use that experience and all like the, all the things that I put myself through to look at it intellectually and look at it thoughtfully and write about it. Whereas when, when I was in the middle of it all the time in my 20s, like living like a party lifestyle, like, I was just kind of writing songs to desperately try to pull myself out of it. But now that like I have, you know, I have a family, I have two kids and, um, and I just feel like I have a much clearer mind about all the things that I went through. I had a very, like, you know, years ago I had very much a, uh, epiphany. Well, I, I, first of all, I was, I was writing a lot when I was hungover and I was convinced <laughs> that that's when I got my good stuff. Cause there's a dark comedy to, to being hungover, right? You kind of like, Oh, I did it to myself again, you know, like, like, I don't know, things oh, yeah. seem funny in some way, in a self-depreciating way. But then I was really worried because I, I stopped drinking for a second and started to get in shape. And I was like, I'm going to lose it all. And, and, and then just sort of by appointments making like, I'm going to sit down and write a song. I, I was able to say like, wow, I guess it wasn't the hangover. You know, <laughs> there was, there was no magic in those hangovers. There was just work. Um, and in that sense, I don't know. I mean, you're talking about being, you know, uh, debauched or, or you know, self-destructive or whatever. But you're also showing up and working. I mean, you're pro still a prolific band through everything. I mean, do you do you take pride in that? In some sense, I mean, I, I personally do. I, I when we reissued uh, 
one of our records, which I didn't think turned out that great as a record, having us one ever. But when I went through all the demos and stuff, I was like, well, at least we were working. You know, <laughs> like, uh, do, you, do you feel that at all? Yeah, I mean, we've definitely recorded a lot of material and we have played countless shows and showed up to 95% of them. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, you know, we we've always worked hard, uh, maybe partied harder, but now now it's flipped. Definitely, we we party, but we work a little harder. You know. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Sounds yeah, like- I, I think we're always when we came to like the writing of the songs and the recording and the work and like sounding good and making the records. Like we were always took it very very seriously. Right. Um, I think especially the songwriting was always the paramount for. Us as a band, and I think John specifically as a songwriter from the from the get go. I you know like we always, we looked up to a lot of like uh, really amazing songwriters. So there was there was always north stars for us to to look to. And I was I was like in preparing for this, I was kind of paying more attention to the credits um, this time, and you know, and I was kind of surprised that some how some of them shook out as long as I was getting the proper information from title. Um, for instance, uh, forgiving ties. Has the writer as John and Dennis? Is that is that right? No, no. Okay, that's it's what I me. Think. It's you. <laughs> How did that happen? I, that's weird. Yeah, that's. What, I felt like that's why I prefaced it with like, "Is this right?" No. So I wrote that song it, like pretty much in its entirety, and then, but there was like a middle verse that I was just having. It's one of those th- things where you write the song and you're like, "All right." I'm going to come back to this and finish it later. I know I can do that. And then like six months goes by and you're like, I have no idea what to say. There's nothing I can add to this. So one of the best things about this band is that I can be like, hey, Dennis, hey, John, do you want to try to write the middle verse? Mm -hmm. And they can come at it from a different perspective. So that's kind of how that happened. And who wrote that middle verse? Dennis. Dennis. So it's you and Dennis. But then John, uh, but then you split the vocals too. I mean, there's you know, at least a back and forth there. Um, and yeah. is that, is that worked out? Is that come up when you are writing the song and, or are you saying, Oh, John will do this part. Or is that just something you guys try out? That's John's idea. We were at the studio with Dave Freeman in Western New York. And we were just like, uh, you know, having some beers on the porch after we finished for the night. And he came up with that idea. And I was like, that's, let's give it a shot. That sounds like a really cool new thing for us to try. That song is on the radio a lot. Like I, I've heard it on multiple stations in my travels this uh, year. Did you, did you when you when you wrote it? Did you say like, "Wow, this is this is it," or is it just sort of reveal itself no. to be the song from the record? <laughs> I didn't even want to record it. Like I, I just I thought it was like uh, just kind of like too wordy, too like I don't know. But I was surprised. I think like the recording process and my bandmates' um, faith in the song made it what it is. You know what I mean? I didn't think it was like a single at all because we already had some other songs that I thought could be singles too. No, very pleasantly surprised with all, all the, the uh, nice attention that it got from the radio and everything like that. Um, it's really fun to play live too. Dave Friedman is sort of, in my mind as an outsider, I've, I don't know him, but you know, I know him from uh, kind of working with bands that I consider more psychedelic, Flaming Lips, MGMT, although I know he worked with Spoon too. Is there anything he did differently than other records you made? The way he works, the 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 knowledge of, of mixing and producing is just on some other level. I mean, he he definitely threw in a couple little uh, odd effects here and there. Like there's like a echo on a snare drum that like only happens once, you know, just kind of weird shit like that, that would have probably never been on a deer tick record of the past, but he's just able to get such humongous, sounds uh it's it's I, I don't know i feel like the music that he records it really really soars yeah and you know it, we didn't do anything you know special the, the four of us out in the room we just kind of tracked most of the songs kind of all together and it's like maybe the maybe the third or fourth take max that you're you're hearing and then you know, we just did a couple overdubs here and there, and uh, we're 
just as surprised as anybody else when we heard it played back you know it's great i don't know he's got he's got a magic touch that i think it i mean it definitely lends itself to more psychedelic music like you said but i think it works really well with kind of a more meat and potatoes rock and roll sound too it uh yeah it does something really cool it sounds spectacular i mean it the actual sound of the records is really yeah great. He, he mixes really quietly too it's it's cool like when he's mixing it's like you know everybody's got to be really quiet in the control room because <laughs> he's got he's got these tiny little speakers and that's how he mixes and then when he feels like it's done then he turns on the big speakers and listens back you know were you at mixing yeah yeah uh, i was gonna say like half the big difference with how we worked in the past is we would squish mixing in at the end and like half of the entire sessions like which was probably a total of a month were just mixing and it was like two weeks of mixing and like he would spend all like one day per song pretty much and he would just spend the whole day mixing and you like he actually was like you guys don't have to be here at all you can just leave and then come back and listen at the end of the day but we were so fascinated with the process that we wanted to you know take a peek but um yeah so like i think that's the biggest difference is that like the, the we tracked everything really fast and then he spent a long time with a lot of care mixing that's super cool you know i was thinking about the first like when i met you guys and the first time first time i saw you one of the first it wasn't the first but one of the first times you were playing on the boat um in new york and um I remember, you know, and we talked about this a little earlier, but like, yeah, I think you did a Buddy Holly cover. You probably did La Bamba that night. One of my takes was you guys are younger than me, but you're like really plugged into a lot of like older and classic with a small C classic music. Mm-hmm. You all seem, you know, somewhat reverent about those, those kind of people, those, that kind of band. You know, it sounds like, John, you had that in your house a little bit. How do you think... Was it a matter of find? Did all you guys sort of find each other that way with an appreciation, or was there still like a discovery going on of older music? I mean, I had just grown up with it, and I don't know if you know when Chris and Dennis first joined the band. I'm not really sure where they were at as far as their appreciation of you know 50s and 60s rock and roll, but. Uh, maybe they just went along with the songs I wanted to cover because they <laughs> thought it was funny or something. But you know, I was, I was very serious about it uh, in a way. I mean, it's also kind of humorous for whatever reason. I mean, I don't think the songs are funny, but just, you know, I don't know. And then Ian came along, and Ian's knowledge of of that kind of music is, you know, similar to mine. Yeah. I don't know, it just kind of, that became a defining characteristic of our, our band. Well, I'm wondering, because I've seen you do like cover sets. I, I I know the most well-known is probably the Nirvana, the Nirvana sets. But I saw you do a Beatles set at the Brooklyn Bowl, as well as the NRBQ Tiddlywinks album. And and I just saw you guys at Newport. I, Ian, you did Knocking on Heaven's Door, I believe. And John, you did Bad, Bad Leroy Brown for the... Uh, I guess the 1973 set, uh, uh, which was great. Um, Do you think like getting inside, you know, working, doing covers, which, you know, you guys have an ease with, do you think that is a way to sort of, you know, bolster your own songwriting or sort of, you know, taking part and learning these kind of classics? Mm -hmm. Do you think that's helpful? Does that end up being helpful? I think specifically for Knocking on Heaven's Door, I, 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 I definitely learned things from covering songs. So for that song, his phrasing is over the top of the, the of the song itself. It's just like so breezy and so strange that having to learn how to do that correctly and not like, I don't know how to put it this, but like sometimes you can just like accidentally cover a song and like change the melody or the phrasing on your own to the point of like it becoming more organized. Whereas like a lot of these like beautiful singers and songwriters like Bruce Springsteen or Bob Dylan are really good at just kind of like making it seem so effortless. And I think that I learned things from covering songs like that. And I think, and I definitely learned it from covering that Lou Reed record, like his phrasing and his, uh, his ability not to rhyme in a song, I think taught me a lot. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? 
So yeah, I definitely think I learned a lot from doing those things. It's like a boot camp. Yeah. How about you, John? Yeah, boot camp. That's a good way to <laughs> to put it. <laughs> um, I don't know. I I I must be learning something, but that just every band that I've ever been in since I was a kid has covered La Bamba. You know, like <laughs> I just thought that's what you did. You played other people's songs. And you played some of your own, and that's how you uh, were a band. Didn't seem like an unusual thing to do, but I like we were one of. I feel like in the early two thousands, when we were first com- coming on the scene, we were one of the few bands that would even do a cover song, and we wouldn't just do one; we'd do like twelve, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and that that's exactly what I was I was found very exciting. It was fun. I mean, it's fun. It's uh, I've sort of come a long way with covers um and to the point where like now with the Hold Steady we've actually had um a couple tribute bands open for us because it feels like, you know, it's Saturday night, not everyone wants to hear like a, you know, challenging noise trio. <laughs> Uh, to open the show, it's like, what if someone played, you know, a bunch of class That's covers a brilliant and idea. everyone knows it? Yeah, we had we had a really good one in Denver, which was called the Nuns of Brixton, which were a Clash cover band that dressed as nuns, <laughs> and it was, I mean, it was awesome. And I was like, yeah, uh, can we just do this like forever? <laughs> it's a beautiful idea. Um, it was the Australian ABBA cover band, I think that like they opened for Nirvana or something, and Nirvana was like, we're not playing Reading unless unless you let them open like direct <laughs> right before us. So I mean, it puts it set it tees it up, you know what I mean? Like like if you play if you play forty five minutes of music where the crowd knows every song, it really gets to to a point where you where you come on and it's things are ready to that's go. Not, that's just such a good idea. I can't believe we never thought about that before. <laughs> um, John, I saw you on stage at Newport this year with Los Lobos, and you tell a story that was pretty amazing. How the first show I think you ever attended was Los Lobos at Newport Folk. Yeah. I'm worried. I'm wondering what you remember about that first show, and also sort of what the full circle moment of that was like. I mean, I was, I was very young. I, I remember very little. Uh, I more remember like a, just a feeling that I was at an event or something. You know, I don't. Know, Los Lobos has has consistently been one of my favorite bands from early childhood, and. It was a very emotional uh, kind of moment. I was really losing my shit. I was I was pissing my pants up there. Like I look up to those guys so much, and you know I'm a very close friends with Steve Berlin, but that didn't help calm my nerves at all. You know, just <laughs> so that uh, was one of the questions I wrote down. Does does the act of playing music keep you occupied and keep your your mind off things in that moment, or or are you fully like shit? Like this is happening. In that particular moment, I was just all over the place. Uh, (laughs) I kind (laughs) of couldn't believe what was happening. And, you know, to have my mom there on the side of the stage, you know, it was really emotional for her. And that was cool to know that she was right there watching. So, uh, yeah, that was a pretty amazing full circle moment in my life. Yeah, it was spectacular to watch, and and then the way you told the story about it really made me happy to be there to see it. And uh, also, Los Lobos was incredible. Like, I've, and I've seen That's him before, set. but I thought that set was incredible. They were heavy. The heaviness of it at times just blew me away. Like, I mean, it was like it got heavy. Yeah, heavy. those guys could do um, fucking anything, and it's great. Yeah. Josh Kaufman was standing next to me and he said that it, it, to go from like some of that heavy stuff, which is almost like, I mean, it, there was a moment that was like Black Sabbath heavy and then they kind of go to the, you know, the traditional music and he's like, it's almost like a party trick. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> like, you do this, I can do this too. Well, it, right. You know, right, and it, it's really spectacular. It's one of the best, best things I've seen in a long time. I have one last question for you guys. And it's one that I think I'm going to kind of, uh, get into um this season of the podcast um and 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 just ask uh 
everyone kind of about this. And, you know, I've known you to both to live in different places, but Deer Tick is now all in Providence. You named a record Divine Providence. You, I think you're all, you're all in Providence area, yeah, right? right? Rhode Island, whatever. Um, and I seriously, I associate your band with Providence. But, you know, you've been traveling around the world, playing shows for you know, a long time now. How, I'm wondering, you know, if, if Providence, uh, John, I know it's your hometown. How has the city changed and how has your relationship with the city changed? Well, um, Providence is like a, a, it's a very kind of nice gussied up version of itself or of the city that I grew up in, you know, it was a real, uh, it was, I mean, it was just a little stain on the map in between Boston and New York, you know, you know, Buddy Cianci, our, our mayor for all his faults and crimes, uh, <laughs> did, uh, really transform the city and, and was a big supporter of the arts here. Um, so that that allowed the city to to grow in a way. But, you know, along with that also came, you know, development that put a lot of artists out of their workspaces and homes and stuff. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's a different place now and I, I don't live in the city anymore and uh you know when I when I go in you know a pretty consistent basis but you know I, I still I I do in fact make whatever old rounds uh I <laughs> I can make because a lot of it's disappearing is there a place like a commercial like I don't know store restaurant bar whatever that you that you miss that's not there anymore i i got one um there's a bar that was kind of our home base for a while called the e and o yeah and that was just like we spent a lot of time there when me and john lived together especially yeah and that that is no longer no it's a new bar called deadbeats now which i've heard is great so i wish them all the luck in the world i think they're they're part of the old eno crew from what i understand so um, same question to you, Ian. Though you you grew up in Springfield area, right? Uh, and how how is the touring and all that? How has it changed your relationship with your hometown? Like, obviously, you've traveled tons. Does it has it? Um, yeah, um, I really, you know what? Um, my actual town of West Springfield, uh, I don't really like going back there very much. <laughs> I spent my whole entire childhood finding ways to leave, and I, when I finally did, move to New York City. It was like the whole world opened up for me. And all I wanted to do after that was to be in a touring band. It just seemed like the best way to see the world and the best way to meet people. And yeah, I guess like my traveling has even put me at a further distance from my home hometown. But I do feel, having lived in Providence for about 15 years, that, I mean, I'm raising a family here. It's like, it feels like my hometown now. And I spent my entire 20s like just kind of like immersed in Providence and local culture and uh so I love it here and I think it's only like made coming home a lot a lot better to be living here right on I mean I, I say I ask this because you know I just got back from Minneapolis and my family's I don't have family there anymore so I stay in a hotel and it was a very like it's a, it's a strange feeling to be like yeah can I get a ride or you know call it I don't know and then a couple times this past trip I got lost trying to do like a shortcut that didn't work and I was like Jeez, this is I'm yeah <laughs> yeah feeling disconnected I, I I use GPS in my hometown now because I'm not really <laughs> sure what the quickest way is going to be anymore you know all right. I think we can all relate to that. Not even sure what the quickest way is going to be anymore. Sounds like a song or a line to a song or, or not. Either way, it was so cool to have these guys on the show. The new album, Emotional Contracts, excellent. Check it out. Um, man, check out that first song, If I Try to Leave. That is a jam. On top of killer songs and excellent performances, I think it's a particularly great sounding record. A special band and a band that is on tour. Check out DeerTickMusic.com for dates. They're on the road right now, heading into some major markets, Toronto, Boston, NYC, DC, and more. Go see them. I'm going to go see them. Maybe you'll see me there. Also, ever since that conversation, I've been thinking about what Ian said about songs about space. I think I'm not so hot on songs about space either, at least versus songs about other things. And that got me thinking about science fiction, 
top of my head, the only science fiction stuff I really love is the first two Star Wars movies, which might be nostalgia probably. But I also really like that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, Total Recall, which seems like an outlier. But then I thought about like Total Recall implies a very good memory. And here I am with this podcast. That's how I remember it. Did I just blow your mind? I doubt it. But I thought it was worth bringing up. Also worth bringing up. I've got some live versions of this podcast coming right up. November 29th at the White Hotel is part of the Hold Steady's annual Massive Night Celebration. We're calling this First Night, and I'll be joined by my Hold Steady bandmates as well as some super special guests. Who are they, you might ask? Um, well, number one, rock and roll super promoter and Brooklyn Bowl owner, Peter Shapiro, who is a huge part of the Hold Steady story over the past eight years and a big part of uh, New York rock story and um, so so many great stories he has, so many shows he's put on. Um, we'll also be joined by our friend Michael Han, who wrote this year's book, The Gospel of the Hold Steady. We'll talk about the book and more. November 29th at the White Hotel. Come be a part of it. Come to a show at Massive Nights. We've got low tickets for Wednesday and Thursday, and Friday and Saturday are already sold out. Get on it. We're going to have a lot of fun. Details at theholdsteady.net. Also, March 2nd, 2024, in the UK, during my solo tour of the UK and Ireland, we'll be hosting a live version of this podcast. It'll happen in London at the Moth Club, which is such a cool venue. We're going to be doing the first overseas version of That's How I Remember It here. It'll go off at 3 p.m. at the Moth Club on March 2nd. We'll have some special guests that we haven't announced yet, but um, they're special. That evening, I'll be playing a show as well, also at the Moth Club. All details for that, as well as my UK tour at craigfin.net. I'd also like to note that some of the UK and Ireland tour is already selling out. It doesn't kick off till mid-February. So think about getting your tickets now. We added that second London show because the first one sold out. And I just want to say, if you think you might come to both, I definitely plan to mix it up between the two nights. Uh, Come to both. Come to the live podcast taping, too. Finally, I want to say thank you for joining us here. Please keep listening to the podcast and subscribe. That helps us out a good deal. I really appreciate you listening and letting us know that you're listening. We've got a ton of great guests coming up. So keep listening and see you back here soon. And that's how I remember it. I'm Craig Fenn.